Take your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We'll, we'll be uh, finishing up our, our section here on a biblical defense of discernment. And uh, these, these texts weren't on your notes from last week, so these are new notes. Uh, then we'll do some history stuff. I'll explain what's on the back of your notes here in just a little bit. Uh, but we'll, I, I wanted to reference a couple of more passages uh, before we move on tonight. So we'll be in Revelation chapter 2. Um, we're going to look at a couple of verses from 12 through 17 and then 18 through 29, a couple of verses we're going to pick out in particular. Uh, just when, when you think that the church world can't get any crazier, you read a headline like this, Pastor Craig Gross, may not be a name you're familiar with, but I probably don't need to preface this with the fact that he's from California. That will be significant here in a minute, all right? Pastor Craig Gross promotes Christian cannabis. You're thinking, what, what's that? All right. Says weed makes it easier to worship. That's not, this isn't fake, all right? So this isn't like Babylon B, if you all know what that website is, okay? In other words, this is not, this is not a fake story. This, this is literal. This is a guy who's been in a, involved in uh, a number of ministries over the years and kind of made a name for himself in a positive way, c- combating the scourge of pornography. In fact, he started a church that reached out to people in that industry and kind of rescued them out of it. But it seems uh, his ministry focus has changed a little bit. A few years ago, he was dealing with some pretty significant migraine headaches And at that time, medical marijuana was legal, and so he found they helped his migraines. Since that time, it is now legal in California, recreational marijuana. His preference is to take it in mint form. I I didn't realize that was an option, all right? But apparently, you can take it in breath mint form, all right? So that's what he prefers, and he says... He says, when I take it, I'm able to concentrate better so that I can pray better, and it opens me up so that my worship becomes more authentic. Probably with a bag of Doritos, all right? I mean, I'm not sure what all goes with it, okay? But this is what he says, pot helps me worship God better. Now, now, again, we're not talking about some what necessarily wacky, progressive, you know, universalist, uh, hippie kind of guy. In fact, a lot of the stuff I remember reading from him nearly 20 years ago had some pretty clear, straightforward explanations of the gospel. You might think this is a fringe guy, but he's really not. And he is arguing that the church needs to talk about this. He's probably right in saying this, wherever you are, eventually marijuana will be legal. He's probably right about that, by the way. I know all of you are burdened by that, probably, but nonetheless, this is probably absolutely going to happen. And his argument is theological, by the way, because God made marijuana on the third day. The the third day. That's, That's when God makes all the plants which obviously included marijuana, right? 
What do you think about the uh, handling of the text in that case? Uh, hopefully, hopefully everybody here has enough discernment to know that's probably not the right use of Genesis chapter 1, right? That in fact it is impossible. It is, do you hear me, church? It is impossible that God made marijuana in Genesis chapter 1. He did not. Okay, so how's that? How's that for clarity on the issue? In case any of you are thinking, huh, I wonder if I should try that. No, okay? Don't. So this is not something that I'm encouraging any of us to be involved in. But this is the state of the church these days. I think we are in a critical time. I think we lack discernment as much as we ever have. You have to go back to the time before the Reformation to reach a period of time in the life of the church where I think we, where we had less discernment than we do today. It almost is an anything-goes kind of mentality. Now, it's usually couched in the terms, we need to try and reach this culture for Christ. We, we need to try and make the gospel uh, such that, that the world around us will hear and listen and appreciate then our message. And so, there's going to be some standards we're going to have to let drop. There's going to be, have to, there's going to be some doctrines we're just going to have to let slide. This is what is happening in the evangelical world these days. And it's a dangerous thing. Really, it's something I think that you see that has gone on even in the larger culture. And it's not something that has happened overnight. That We are where we are because of a slow but steady drift. A chipping away. In other words, we're not where we are because all of a sudden somebody came up with all these crazy ideas and it was yesterday and now here we are. This is something over the course of time that... Bit by bit, they chip away at orthodox foundational teachings, and we find ourselves then moving further and further away from that which represents true biblical teaching. It's similar to what has happened in our secular society. Take, for instance, the, the sexual revolution that has happened in our culture. I know it may be surprising to you to hear this, but you, you know that people were arguing for the legalization of same-sex relationships before I was born. I, now, you may not think that's true, but you can do a Google search if you get bored tonight and find this out. But there were academics writing in the 50s and 60s. Now, they're not writing to the popular world, right? They're writing to one another. And they're teaching this to their classes, but who are they teaching in their classes? Politicians? Educators? Lawyers? People who are going to be in influential positions in a culture? So this is what happens bit by bit. Slowly but surely, there is a chipping away at truth. So that what we end up with years later hardly seems to wreck, look anything like what we had when we first started. And I, and I think that's where we find ourselves these days in the church. Again, it is, it is almost, and anything goes, as long as you believe in Jesus, right? As long as you love Jesus, 
then you and I should just be able to get along, shouldn't we? We should just be able just to get along and do our thing because we're all trying to reach the world for Christ. So shouldn't we just all just be okay with Jesus and shouldn't that be enough? Well, it's not. And it's not that because I say so. I, I think the Bible very clearly lays out for us the case for being discerning believers. Not just discerning pastors, but that people in the pews, that all of us need to participate in what I would call a ministry of discernment. So this is where we find ourselves tonight. Last week we we moved into our second section of our series on discernment. We defined it in the first few weeks, and now we're defending it. And last week we turned our attention to a biblical defense of discernment. Does the Bible really encourage us not only for ourselves, in other words, that we need to be discerning. We as individuals need to be able to tell the difference between right and wrong and good from bad and truth from error, but that we should, out of an act of Christian brotherly and sisterly love, be willing to tell others of the dangers of false teaching. I do think this is a biblical mandate. I think the Bible clearly spells this out. And so we looked at this Uh, looking at a number of passages in the New Testament that give us examples of this. We concluded last week with Jude, where where Jude in verses 3 and 4 says, I I wanted to write to you concerning our common salvation, but instead I am writing to, to, to plead with you, to earnestly contend for the faith. Because men have crept in unaware. They're deceiving the church. And those words were directed not to pastors, not to leaders, but to all believers. To contend, to fight, to wrestle on behalf of, to make sure we are standing up. Not just as individuals personally saying, well, I know this guy is off his rocker, so I'm not going to listen to him. But if you hear the person next to you saying, well, I listen to him, then you need to be willing to say, that guy's off his rocker and you shouldn't listen to him, all right? I'm going to come up with an off-their-rocker list for you, okay? I mean, at some point, I'm going to pass out. These guys are off-their-rockers, okay? And you don't need to listen to them. But then there are the more subtle ones. False teachers that are chipping away, bit by bit, at, at what are foundational, orthodox, historical, biblical teachings. So that, that's what we looked at last week. Now, the, tonight, let's finish up then with this, with the biblical defense. I want to look at two more texts, um, and they're both here in Revelation. So Jesus warns us about this, and I, I find it interesting that in the last book of the Bible, from, the, from Jesus himself, he gives us a warning about the dangers of false teaching, not in the world, but in the church. So, two texts in particular, and there you don't have to fill, there are no blanks to fill in for this part of it. Uh, they're there, the church at Pergamos and the church Thyatira. So, you may be familiar with, with Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Jesus issues seven letters to seven churches, and all but one of them have got some kind of problem that he has to, that he addresses with them. And, and so, in them, there is then this, usually this statement, You've done this pretty well, but this is the problem I have with you. You need to get this straight, otherwise I'm going to remove my lampstand, meaning I'm going to remove my influence, my manifest presence. In essence, 
Your church is going to die. Your church is going to die if you don't don't get this corrected. Two churches in particular, though, I think Jesus addresses the issue of false teaching in particular. So look at the first one there. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, it's interesting he begins this way because what is that a reference to? The two-edged sword. What image is that in Scripture? It is of what? The the Bible, right? I mean, it's of the Bible itself. Hebrews talks about the Bible being a, right, uh, that that it's sharper uh, and it's able to divide bone and marrow. We we have that uh, represented in the the statement on spiritual armor. Uh, Then at the end of Ephesians, that the Bible is the sword. So, two-edged sword. So, it's interesting. He already begins by referencing this standard of truth. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. All right, so they've done some things well. They've been faithful. They've endured persecution. But then he says, but I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, we really don't have time to get into what does he mean by the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. There's a lot of debate about what that is. At the end of the day, clearly what is going on, it is, a, it is an aberration then of the apostles' teaching that then has led to immorality, idolatry. What's significant, though, is he says, you have those among you. So he's not talking about the pagans out there. He's not talking about these other religions. He's saying within the church, you are tolerating those who would lead you astray. Just just as they were led astray in in the Old Testament. You have those who who would teach that which is contrary to the truth. And, and, And so I think Jesus' words here are poignant and profound. We need to be very concerned about false teaching in the church. And I've said this all along. I I am not talking about the teaching of other religions. I am not talking about pagan ideology. Not that that's not a problem. It is a problem. But I'm not talking about fighting the world here. The language of false teaching is always used in the New Testament to refer to that which is influencing the church. The church. So this is why we have to be discerning because this stuff is among us. All right, go on to the next one. Verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. It's funny, by the way, these people who go to heaven and get a tour of heaven, they never talk about Jesus like this, do they? No. 
No, he's a big friendly hippie, all right? So it's funny how everybody else who says they see Jesus sees a big friendly hippie guy, right? But post-ascension, he's never described that way. Okay. So he says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Great. Wow, that's great, right? Wouldn't you love Jesus to say that about you? I know, your works are solid. In fact, you're doing better now than you used to. It's better now than it was. Wow, that's great. But then you have the word, just like in verse 14, but I, but, right, the word but, hey, you're doing great. I want to tell you, I think the world of you, but, right, so you know at that point, it, you're, it's about to get difficult. All right, same thing here, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I will give to each one of you according to your works." How does that sound to the folks who say, you know, Jesus is only ever lovey-dovey? That sounds fairly judgmental, right? I mean, that, these, are, these are strong words coming from the word, from the mouth of Christ himself. I mean, in my Bible, they're in red, right? So, I mean, that's serious. This is, these are Jesus' words. He's telling the church in Thyatira, similar to the folks of Pergamos here, You've allowed somebody, and you notice the language. It's not just they're engaging in sexual immorality. You've allowed a woman, and we don't know the woman's name. Obviously, Jezebel is not literal. Like, that's not actually her name. My guess is that is a, that is a name ascribed to her as a way to describe how she is, rather than using her actual literal name. But I do take this to be an actual person. And he's saying, you've allowed her to do what? Notice again that first term there. You've allowed her to teach. You've allowed her to teach. It's not just that she is engaged in sexual immorality and and tempting people away. She's laying down doctrinal, theological concepts that are leading people into immorality and idolatry. And Jesus' words to this church are, you are allowing this to happen. Now, now, when he says, you know, I laid her up on a sickbed to give her a chance to repent, I, mean, I think that's literal, meaning I, I, I think he brought her to death so that she would come to terms with her sin. When it says, I will kill her children with death, uh, I, I don't think that, that literally means her, her own children. I think it means those who follow her, those whom she has produced as a result of her false teaching. In other words, if they don't repent, then there will be judgment for them as well. So I bring up the example here in Revelation, you know, final book of the Bible, Jesus, some of his last words then to the churches here, and he's warning us about the dangers of false teachers, what they can do to the church. And you'll notice here in particular language, and this may be a blank, but I don't know if I made a slide for it. 
in both instances, it is a doctrinal, so the word doctrinal should go there. In both instances, it is a doctrinal error that encourages a moral failure, which runs the risk of God's judgment. Both instances, it is a doctrinal, so the blank there would be the doctrinal error, and this results in moral failure. So again, you know, our concern, I think, is well-founded. I, I, think, I think there is a clear biblical defense of the ministry of discernment. Jesus is calling out this church for allowing them to allow this. Now again, we, you know, we want to keep in mind, I'll probably mention this all along the way throughout this entire series, there, there are certainly situations in which we can disagree about things. But that's not what's going on here. In other words, there, there may be certain doctrinal statements I've, I've made that you disagree with, but your disagreement, if it comes at the point of the text, in other words, if you're saying, well, I don't think that's how you should understand that passage. All right. We can talk about that. If you are rightly handling the Word, and you and I can come to some different perspectives of that, and there, there are those who could on, on who knows what kinds of, of, of issues. Okay. But here's, here's what I don't respect. If you just don't like it. <laughs> In other words, if you say, well, I know what you're saying, and I know what the Bible's saying, I just don't like it. All right, well, we better talk about something else. Uh, it, or if somebody says, you know, I, I know what the Bible's saying here, but it just doesn't make sense to me. Here's how I think it should be. I'm not interested in that. I got all kinds of thoughts about how things should be, all right? Do you really want to hear that? You don't really want to hear that, all right? I promise you. I've got all kinds of thoughts about nearly anything you would throw out. You, you hear enough of that. You don't want to hear all of that, okay? What we're concerned with is rightly handling the Word, so we can disagree, if our disagreement is at the point of the text, okay, if we're rightly handling it, and we come to different nuances and views and perspectives, that's great. i got plenty of people I am friends with, I deeply respect, I mentioned them last, I've mentioned them before, uh, writers and preachers out there, for example, who would disagree with me on my view of baptism. Some of the godliest, most biblical teachers I've ever heard. All right. We can disagree. They can be wrong. All right? In other words, all that's fine. And we don't, we don't disassociate from them, right? In other words, we don't, we don't, I, I don't consider them unbelievers. I don't warn them, well, God's going to judge you for this. Now, that disagreement, by the way, that one is probably significant enough where, you know, he and I wouldn't go start a church together, all right? Because that's going to come to a point where we've got an issue when people want to join. However, we can disagree on some things. But that, again, that's not what he's getting at here. This is serious doctrinal error that results in a clear misapplication. It's leading people astray. And and you and I should be committed then to calling it out when we see it. A commitment to saying, no, we can't can't do this. We, We can't allow this teaching that mishandles the Word of God to go on mishandling the Word of God. I mean, they can keep on teaching that way but I, I have to say something about it. And, and, and listen, church, I, I hope you hear me. I, I, don't, I also don't want us to develop 
like a, like a hypercritical, grumpy, you might think too late, grumpy kind of perspective on things, all right? In other words, we, we want to do this in, in, in love, in genuine love. I would argue helping other people with discernment is an act of love. They may not always like it, though. Not all of your expressions of love to people are necessarily received as love, but that didn't make them any less loving, right? My guess is you've told people hard truth out of love, and they didn't like it. Does that mean you were being then unloving? Of course not. not in fact, my guess is you've been told the truth and didn't care for it very much. I can tell you I've been told the truth and didn't care for it, especially when it was about me. So, so, so just, just because it's something that somebody may not receive doesn't mean it's not loving. But I, I would argue being willing to point this out, to, to rescue somebody from potential influence from a false teacher. And let me tell you what my particular concern is. Getting back then to this original illustration I used at the beginning, the guy who says now we can smoke weed, all right, and that's all good. There, there is this slow chipping away. It is a slow chipping away. So, when I hear a teacher like Andy Stanley say, we need to unmoor ourselves from the Old Testament. Mm. It sounds like a slow, small perhaps step away, but it's a step away when he says things like, We can no longer use the phrase because the Bible says so as our authority when we're sharing truth claims. So this is disconcerting. He'll come back, as I've heard him, then have to, he'll make these statements and then he'll get all kinds of grief for it, right? And then he'll come back and try and back pedal a little bit on it and say, but I do believe the Bible, and I do believe in the Old Testament, but then he'll say, but for the sake of reaching the culture with the gospel, that's why I speak this way. There's your slow drift, church. That's how it starts, one step at a time. Listen, false teachers don't jump off a cliff. It's not one big step. It's little bitty baby steps all the way down the mountain. So we've got, we've got, I think we've got to t- recognize our responsibility here to be faithful to this ministry of discernment. All right, so that's the biblical defense of it. Now, here's, here's what I've done for you. I told you last week we were going to do this. It's kind of warm in here, so it's, it's hard then. It's, kind of, it's going to be hard to bring up my next word. Some of you are going to go to sleep immediately hearing it. History. But you're still with me though, right, Bill? All right, okay. History. Some of you really don't like history. Some of you weren't good at history. I'm not going to ask who those people are, because then from now on, I will pick on you in whatever service I come to, all right? So I don't want to do that to you. But I do want to take just a moment... And not only, I not only want to defend this biblically, I want to defend it historically. What I mean by that is, we are where we are, not by, you know, just random occurrence of events. Uh, we are where we are because of what has come before us. And the church has always been called upon 
to act with discernment against those forces which would encourage it to veer off course. In fact, it has been said that to study the history of doctrine and theology in the church is to study the history of heresy in the church. Because this is what happens. It runs along this track where the, where the church confronts false teachers. It finds itself clarifying what it believes. Somebody comes along and says some knuckleheaded thing, all right? And so the church replies. Leaders, pastors, the church replies and says, no, that's a knuckleheaded thing, all right? That's not what the Bible says. That's not the doctrine that's been passed down to us. And so we, we have the church constantly defending, refining, clearly articulating its theology in the face of false teaching. On the back of your notes, I've given you the world's shortest synopsis of church history. It's one page, right? There you go. It's, it's one page. Surely there, you could read one page of church history, right? I mean, just one. So I put it here on the back. Uh, I'm going to make a few comments about it just to, just to summarize what has gone on in the life of the church. But maybe some of this you'll read it and you'll get interested in wanting to, you know, check out how, how the church has developed and how it has found herself coming back again and again to truth in reaction to error. Actually, you know when this really starts? In the New Testament. Why do you think Paul wrote some of his letters? Do you think he was trying to write the Bible? Did, well, no. Does he, does he know what he's doing? In other words, is, is he intentionally sitting down thinking, you know what, I'm probably writing a letter here that they're going to read 2,000 years from now. No, he's not doing that. Instead, he is writing a letter, one, to encourage believers, but to affirm them in the faith. These books of the Bible are letters of discernment. They're letters designed to encourage the church to think carefully about the gospel and how to understand the gospel, Christ crucified and resurrected. And so right from the beginning, we have Paul doing this. We have Paul primarily confronting the group of people that wanted the church to include the law of Moses in the gospel. So that's, that's where this ministry really begins. A ministry of discernment begins right in the New Testament as Paul is fighting the Judaizers. And those who want to say, all right, you can have the Jesus thing, but you're going to have to keep circumcision. You're going to have to keep some of these rituals and the calendar. You've got to do all this stuff. And so, so much of the New Testament is a clarification of the gospel, especially in light of problematic views of the Old Testament. Say, no, that's not how you understand the Old Testament. The law was fulfilled in Christ. So an entire book like Galatians is designed for just that purpose. Say, no, the entire law is fulfilled in Christ. We we don't go back to the law. We don't go back to the the tutor. We don't go back to the slave master. We don't go back there. No, we're, we're under Christ. Now, you jump out of the time of the New Testament, you get to like the 100s, 200s, and 300s. Does anybody know the group of men who dominate the 100s, 200s, and 300s, what, what do we call them? The guys who write during this period of time. We call them what? The church fathers. Right? You say it like that, it sounds a lot more pious, right? We call them church fathers, 
And that really does sound a little pious, doesn't it? Maybe some of you who were raised Catholic kind of shudder, all right, if I reference the church fathers. You know who these guys were? They're just pastors. I say just. It can be a hard job sometimes. But that's all they are, though. I mean, they are, they, are, they are pastors. In other words, they're preaching every week. They're visiting the sick. They're doing funerals. They're counseling people. That's what these guys are doing, except they're doing it at a time when the Romans want to feed them to the lions. So that's tricky. Tricky to do ministry in that kind of environment. And so primarily, those early church fathers, the 100s, 200s, they're writing works that confirm what the New Testament says about the gospel. They're encouraging their church members to fight the good fight, to endure, to run the race with endurance. I mean, they're encouraging them in the face of persecution to stand strong against all of these competing worldviews and, and, and even threatening ones. But when they stop feeding us to lions, when they stop impaling us on stakes and burning us in gardens, all right, when they stop crucifying us, in other words, when Christians are kind of able to worship freely, you have a little more time to do theology. So we get into three, four, five, six hundreds. And here's what's going on. Since they got a little more time on their hands, they're not running from the Romans, now they're kind of in charge of Rome. Now they're starting to refine their theology. And you've got these knuckleheads that want to, that want to take over the train, all right, and take it off of a different track. You've got like one group, for example, wants to come along and say, listen, the Greek mindset will never believe that God could actually be in the flesh. And so there's no way Jesus was actually human flesh may sound odd to us that somebody would have rejected that idea. I mean, in our day and age, people reject the idea of his divinity, right? But in this time, there's a whole group of folks that are saying, nope, he just looked human, but he wasn't actually human. Uh, Another group of folks were saying, you know what? Jesus is not the eternal Son of God. There was a time when Jesus didn't even exist. Instead, here's what happened. God adopted him after he was baptized. It's at that point, because it says in Matthew, you are my son. So it's after that point that he becomes a divine man. So there was that group of knuckleheads. Uh, Then you had another group that came along and said, you know what? These books that, that you have operating with authority, which by the way, regardless of what you hear on the History Channel, all 27 of the New Testament books were operating with authority in the church by the 100s. Don't listen to anything they say on the History Channel. Just assume all of it is wrong, okay? When they talk theology, assume all of it is wrong until you can prove otherwise. Assume all of it's wrong. I know you think, that's nah, just pre- oh, preacher. <laughs> preacher. Yeah, I know. In, on a channel that spends as much time on UFOs as they do history, I'm just telling you, all right? It's, it's not actual history. So the, these 27 books, the ones you have in your New Testament, they are all functioning authoritatively in the church. But you got these knuckleheads who come along and who say, nope, don't like that one. you got a guy like Marcion who comes along and says, any book that has Jewish flavor to it, we got to get rid of. And so he ends up with a Bible, a New Testament that consists of like Luke and I, I, I don't know what other one it was. It was like Luke and, I don't know, First Peter or something. It, in other words, anything that kind of smacked of Judaism, we had to get rid of. 
And so he has a very small Bible. Others, others were saying, you know what? We need to add books because there's this Gospel of Thomas. There's the Gospel of Mary. There's the Gospel of Peter. These books should be added in along the way. So here's what's going on in those early years of the church. that They find themselves fighting against this, this group or that group that's wanting to come in, take over the train, take it on a different path. And so what do they do? They call a business meeting. That's what they do. They call a convention. They didn't call it that. You know what they called it? Councils. And they would meet in important cities. Like Nicaea. Or Ephesus. Or Chalcedon. Or Antioch. Or Constantinople. In fact, they did it seven times. Where throughout those centuries, they, they called together councils, again, because you had knuckleheads wanting to take over the train, and so they're coming along saying, nope, nope, the train is on the right track because we are contending for the faith earnestly, once for all delivered to the saints. And so we believe Jesus was fully God and fully man. We're not buying the whole, he only appeared to be human. Nope, we believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally existing, three in one. We're not buying into your whole three different gods or their Jesus and the Spirit aren't actually gods. We're rejecting that. Nope, we're sticking with the canon as we have it. We're not adding these other books because they were written later by heretics. And so we're not adding these books. And every time they had a council, they produced a creed. The creed was then a synthesis a summary of key theological ideas that could then be passed out to all the pastors in attendance. They could go back to their churches, and the creed became a standard. It became a measure. It became a way in which that particular congregation could hear the teachings of the knuckleheads and go, nope, that's not what the Bible says. That's, that's not a right understanding of doctrine. In other words, in these first few hundred years, the church is engaging in a ministry of discernment because there were real threats to the church. And they recognized that in order to maintain the health and well-being of the church, we need to make sure we are establishing clearly what's true and what's false, what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad? They were working with these categories of discernment. And they were comparing it all then to the, to the Word of God. Now, we'll, we'll get into this next week. Somewhere around the seven eight hundreds ish the guys who were driving the train, the guys who take over the train, start ruling the train and claiming they're the only ones who know how to drive the train. In other words, we develop the formal Catholic church. And things get really dark for a while. Because now we've got a pope, in spite of what the Catholic church says, uh, the, the pope was not formally recognized in the church as a source of authority till six, seven hundred years after the time of the New Testament. We have a split in the church, by the way, Catholic church and Orthodox church, the West and the East, so the Catholics and the Greek Orthodox split over a number of issues. But you've, you've got popes established, and they're the only guys who can tell you what the Bible means. 
No one else can read the Bible because now the thing is only in Latin and the vast majority of so-called church members can't even read. For sure they can't read Latin. And, so that, and, and even on top of that, they don't have the book in front of them anyway. And in many cases, you have several popes along the centuries who made it uh, illegal, in essence, for you to own a Bible. Only the pope could interpret it. And only the priest can tell you what that interpretation was. So next week we'll jump into that and we'll see then how the church responds to this. Uh, and we'll finish up our little consideration then of the history of the church. And I'll make some concluding comments then next week. Uh, we'll talk some next week about then what are the barriers to this? Uh, why is it that we don't engage in discernment as a ministry uh, to our brothers and sisters in Christ? And, uh, and then hopefully that will then finish up. Uh, this particular section of, uh, of this series. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again for gathering your people. Uh, we do thank you, God, that, that you have entrusted us with your word. We want to be faithful to it. And we pray, God, you would continue to make us discerning people. We know we are living in a dangerous world, and we are living in a time in the life of the church uh, where, where it seems that there are fewer and fewer uh, who are committed to being discerning. So, Father, I, uh, I pray that we would commit ourselves to this task and would rightly handle your word and then would be willing to love our brothers and sisters in Christ that they may love your word uh, as well. I just thank you for these who've come out tonight. I thank you for their willingness to be a part of this time together. I pray that you would bless them for their commitment to you and to your church. They would know your hand upon them, grant wisdom Uh, And then as we live the rest of this week, may we do so in faith and obedience to you, that you might be glorified through all that we do. Gather your people back together again. We might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.